Agency 34 in the Shadow Minister of Health, uh, MP Kim Wilson. You have the floor. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, first and foremost, I would like to extend my thanks to the government for listening to the opposition, the physicians, the gynecologists and OBGYNs, and more importantly, the people with respect to the, uh, I guess, effectively reversal of Section 5 in the act that we are speaking about today as it relates to the issue of mammograms. And I'm glad that through that decision of the government, it confirms to us and to the people that there is an important element with respect to um, the per with female health and with respect to the issues that surround uh, a woman's choice for her body and for the treatment slash diagnosis slash screening that she deserves. Um, all in, by and large, Mr. Speaker, the Health Insurance Miscellaneous Amendment Act 2015 does provide for a number of measures that we, the opposition, do support. When you look at this bill, effectively it is what we like to refer to as a cost containment bill. Certain measures that are adopted in this bill are certainly designed to um, curtail the skyrocketing cost of our healthcare system. There's no one in this room or perhaps very few people in this country that would deny the fact that Currently, the cost of health care are spiraling out of control, and they are not sustainable. And that something and several things have to be done to try to stop the hemorrhaging, so to speak. And, Mr. Speaker, when you look at this bill concerning, uh, like I said, the several issues of cost containment, I think that it's important also to note that there are avenues in which we can adopt that will help to curtail the cost of health care without to sorry without detrimental effects to the patient because obviously first and foremost um, health care is a right and not a privilege and therefore we need to ensure that whatever steps we do take first and foremost patient care has to be at the forefront of that decision-making process mr. speaker as I said, the bill contains certain cost containment measures, which we do support, and I would like to go over them, albeit briefly, and then offer perhaps a few suggestions to the government that can also be considered as, insofar as containing the cost of health care. First of all, Mr. Speaker, with respect to the provisions of this act that speak to uh, the inpatient care, we recognize that inpatient care is very, very high in the, um, within Bermuda. And I believe the last budget indicated that uh, the budget for health, the Ministry of Health Seniors, was $196 million, And of that $196 million, $146 million was allocated to King Edward Memorial Hospital. So we can see there that the majority of the budget for the health ministry relates to the hospital. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments because I note that some of these extra fees that uh, we will be uh, incurring are going to the hospital. But I'll get to that in a few moments. Mr. Speaker, the, um, there's many cases that 
we've spoken about concerning the expenses related to patients in acute care center, in the acute care portion of the hospital. We've spoken previously about uh, how much that costs, and we've spoken about situations, unfortunately, where patients, for a variety of reasons, are able to be discharged by their primary caregiver. However, they remain in hospital. And we recognize that that is a huge burden to not only the taxpayers, but the hospital insofar as the expenses that are incurred. We also, I'm sure, can agree that there are instances where patients will probably do better and be cared for. Not, uh, I'm not trying to disparage the nurses and the wonderful persons that work within the hospital to take care of patients, but certainly persons being within their home environment will probably see a speedier recovery time than actually being in hospital. And to that, I'm speaking specifically to the government's suggestion that certain subsidy payments will now be applied towards uh, different areas with respect to health care, driving people away from the hospital, so to speak, decentralizing the hospital uh, service for inpatient care. So we'll be talking about in this legislation provisions where if it's a nursing home or a care facility, excuse me, one moment, residential care home or nursing home, or if it's a circumstance where a person is providing hospice care or a person is providing post-acute care, um, i.e. a caregiver. In those scenarios, we're pleased to see the government's commitment to decentralization in that they will now be applying some of the um, subsidy payments towards those entities. So what we're seeing, which is happening throughout America and other jurisdictions in Europe as well, is this whole concept of decentralization. And we commend the government for taking steps to look at that because it is certainly a cost-cutting measure. And we see where the main hospital isn't the center for focus of our treatment modalities and that there's other areas that can be utilized within the community so that it's spreading the costs around, so to speak. And in this regard, the fact that the government is proposing that the subsidies can now be paid towards a caregiver in someone's home, certainly in addition to the benefits that I've just spoken about with respect to people being perhaps having a quicker recovery time when they're home and surrounded by their loved ones, but the fact that we're taking that person out of the hospital in circumstances where they can be cared for in a residential facility or a nursing home or at home. So the, uh, we applaud the government for providing an avenue where the subsidies can be applied for those particular scenarios. And I'd ask the government to also consider, which we'll be speaking about a little bit later, uh, in terms of extending that particular, uh, the provisos insofar as where the subsidies could be applied to, and perhaps also give consideration to the subsidies being applied to approved surgery, outpatient surgery facilities. We're seeing in the United States and other jurisdictions a lot of decentralization of the surgical care. So, for example, because of increased technology and increased um, types of uh, the technological advances, certain types of surgeries non-risky surgeries, and I'm not sure if that's the proper medical term, but um, those type of matters are being performed in the physician's offices as opposed to in 
the hospital. So we're seeing, again, an aspect of decentralization. So rather than someone attend at the hospital, for example, to have perhaps their nasal passages taking out the cartridge, decartionalization or whatever, I'm not sure the medical term, forgive me. But it's, some, it's a non-risky procedure, and it can take place in the hospital and the expenses associated with the hospital. But alternatively, given the advances in technology, there's a lot of different types of treatments that can actually be performed in the physician's office. In fact, I understand that almost 80% of a large percentage of the OBGYN procedures, obviously not going with, within the womb, but certain other types of procedures can be performed by the physician in their office. So there's certainly a cost-saving measure, and again, it's an issue of decentralization. And I would hope that the government will perhaps consider when we get to that stage, adding uh, decentralization of surgical, sorry, outpatient surgical care also to that list of situations in which a subsidy can be applied. Also, Mr. Speaker, we also, as the opposition, support the propositions in this bill that deal specifically with the provisions of establishing a primary care program for the treatment of the chronic and non-communicable diseases. And as the minister indicated, the pilot program that's being established where some of the uh, persons that are uninsured or on HIP but with financial assistance for uh, certain chronic illnesses, things that we know that exist, unfortunately, in high demand here in Bermuda, such as diabetes and um, uh, high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, that those persons will be able to receive um, primary care and case management. So we also commend the government for that particular aspect. Mr. Speaker, the... Um, also, the other provision that we also support is the payment or the increased payment of the artificial limbs and the appliances, the increase from 15000 to 30000 Now, Mr. Speaker, one of the things that we note, and I spoke about it previously, is that the KEMH, as the sole acute care center, trauma center, surgical facility, obviously um, occupies the large percentage of the health care cost. And we need to look at ways to minimize or cost contain our health care services. And one such way to look at that is obviously through uh, the hospital and the um, proper efficient running of the hospital. But I'm going to turn to that in a few moments. One of the main things that we cannot support is the increase in the 12% the increase that we're speaking about. In this day and age where persons are being required to do more with less, we're seeing redundancies, we're seeing persons unemployed, persons underemployed, persons having to scratch where they don't itch, so to speak, rising cost of electricity, food prices, medication, and the like, and now we have a situation where persons that recognize the struggle, the struggle is real, and we have high expenses, layoffs, redundancies, etc. and we are looking at a proposal in legislation that seeks to increase the standard hospital rate by 12%. And to some people that might not sound like a lot. And uh, assuming, well, we know that legislatively the employer pays half 
and the employee pays half, so that 12% we would see would represent a 6% for the individual, for the employee, which represents about $15 per month. And again, it may not seem like a lot, but when all those other things are added into the equation, a 12% increase in the hospital standard rate is certainly going to hurt Mr. and Mrs. It's going to affect, in a negative way, Mr. and Mrs. Bermuda. And we submit, Mr. Speaker, that there's a number of other ways that we can help to curtail the rising cost of health care without actually having to go to the um, Mr. and Mrs. Bermuda and ask them to pay higher standard hospital benefit premiums. And we also note that even though the standard hospital benefit premium will increase by 12%, we know that the insurance companies are going to also add their percentage as it relates to the administrative fees, as it relates to the... Um, the part that each person has to pay as well as any other estimates. And we understand that some insurance companies are already estimating that that percentage could be as high as 19%. So at the end of the month, when all this is said and done, we're going to see people that are going to be having, again, to do more with less. And that's something that we can't support. Let's talk about some other cost-containing measures that perhaps the government would consider that would be in lieu of having to increase the standard hospital rate. Like I said, let me start with the hospital, KEMH, okay? We do know that um, we've discussed the issue concerning the overutilization of the acute care beds. And that, as I understand it, within the first few months of the hospital being open, they were already full to capacity. And we've heard stories where individuals were having to be... Um, coming in for acute ailments, um, ailments, but having to be in the emergency department because the beds were already full. The acute care center part was full. And we also heard of issues concerning um, there being delays in discharges, sometimes of family members, um, either for, for personal reasons or reasons of inconvenience, et cetera. But one way to reduce, we submit, this particular ailment or this particular um, issue concerning persons that are being ready to be discharged from the hospital. The doctors have said, you can go. You can be discharged. You're fit to go home. But because of personal circumstances or whatever, the family have decided that they're not going to remove that person. We've spoken about that previously. And perhaps one suggestion that the government can consider, and the hospital in particular, is to uh, effectively charge patients for a portion of their hospital fees that are that run after they've been discharged. So, for example, a doctor discharges the patient, say, you can go home today, and the patient, for a variety of reasons, decides to stay an extra week or two weeks or two days, then there should be a charge associated with that patient, a portion of their charge of what those hospital fees would be because they have decided to stay, notwithstanding the fact that they have been discharged. And obviously, um, we've also spoken about um, a scenario similar to this where when the person is admitted, Mr. Speaker, the, the hospital can perhaps take a visa card or a credit card from that person upon admission so that, again, if they stay over, they're welcome, so to speak. If they decide to stay in after they have been discharged and fit to go home, then somebody should be incurring those costs or at least a portion of that cost, and that can be attached to the credit card. The other step that we would propose that we see that the minister has indicated um, within her budget brief, particularly concerning this legislation, is the whole issue concerning community health care. Now, Mr. Speaker, 
One of the ways, one of the biggest costs that we've indicated previously that is a driver of our high cost of health care is the issue concerning the hospital and um, persons staying or going to the hospital. We've heard of situations where persons go into the hospital for issues that perhaps could don't have to necessarily um, amount to any type of emergency work, but can be dealt with perhaps in the community clinics. We should better utilize our community clinics, again, decentralizing everything from the hospital. For example, I was speaking about a situation the other day to a constituent, and this particular person attends at the hospital to receive treatment for getting the catheter changed. Now, that's an obvious expense. The nurses are obviously having to deal with this particular um, issue, but it's certainly something that could better be suited by a community health organization, such as better utilization of our clinics. This person lived in the Somerset community, so we have this clinic that's in Somerset. We have one in in the East End, and why not util better util and in Ward, thank you, and, and Hamilton, better utilize our clinics so that in circumstances such as the one I'm speaking about, where the person is going to the hospital every week to have a catheter changed, that it can utilize the clinics instead at a fraction of the cost. So I'm suggesting that we do better and improve our health care system by utilizing our community health workers. What about with respect to um, many of those persons that are otherwise uninsured or underinsured that rely on the hospital. They go into the hospital, into the emergency department, no less, for certain types of treatment. Perhaps those type of and this is during the day, so it's not even like they don't even necessarily want to go to their own physician. Why not better utilize the uh, community health services? Another thing that we can consider is we understand the nurses that work at the hospital are required to re retire at age 65. Now, we all know, and we've spoken about this in other issues, Mr. Speaker, insofar as this issue concerning um, mandatory retirement um, at 65. I read an article the other day, and they were celebrating during Nurses Week, no doubt, a nurse who was 90 years old, and she was as spry, you saw that? And she was as spry as probably a 60-year-old, and she was still working in the emergency department. And I, I think it, we, we all know the arguments about if, if the person is, is fit to continue work, et cetera, et cetera, and they're over 65, then why should they be forced to retire? Why can we not utilize some of those nurses that were formerly at the hospital, but they were forced to retire at 65 within our community health care system? Why can't they be utilized at our community clinics and also to go into the community to help the person that I was speaking about that goes into the hospital every week to have a catheter. So better utilization of the nurses. I know we all know nurses that are over 65 that have just retired, living within our communities, that have a wealth of knowledge and experience that we should be utilizing. These nurses can also help to supplement the healthcare home visitors that we have so that in circumstances where, and this is a suggestion, and we could try to formulate a system where taking into consideration the patient's, taking into, taking into consideration the patient's consent, where doctors refer patients with certain type of chronic issues, that these patients that are living within the community, and they have chronic issues, but the issues are such that the, um, nurses and healthcare providers can attend to their, their, 
their, their, their woes as opposed to them having to go to the hospital, such as the changes of catheters, changes of dressings, attending to bed sores, things like that, where they're in the community, and then the doctors have a register. They have that information for the... Um, they have that information of those patients on that register. That information is given to the community health nurses and the community clinics. And then those nurses go into the community and visit with those patients and help them to change their dressings or change their catheters or do those type of things rather than those persons. So, again, we're decentralizing that aspect as opposed to those persons getting taken down to the hospital, to the emergency department by their family members for bed sores to be attended to and so forth. Another part that I think is critical of community health care is the education aspect. Regrettably, Bermuda has one of the largest um, uh, um, obese populations. We have one of the largest um, diabetic populations, type 2, di type 2 diabetes, the largest amputation population with respect to persons that have type 2 diabetes. Let, per capita, thank you. Um, Let's deal with community health from an education point of view. We know, we all agree that prevention is far cheaper than a, a cure. Let's utilize those nurses and provide further education within the community um, to deal with those type of issues, to address those issues so people can become more aware of the health benefits and, and, and the um, detrimental effects of poor eating, lack of exercise, etc. And Mr. Speaker, some people may say, well, how can we pay for this? I've, I've made this suggestion before, and I know it didn't go, on, go down well in some quarters, but why not have, we can provide the money that we need for the further education in Bermuda and so forth by having a sugar tax, having a sin tax. Tax the items that are causing obesity. Tax the items that are causing hypertension and high blood pressure. And the monies utilized from that taxes can be better applied towards um, education and health. Mr. Speaker, um, we've spoken up before. We have an aging population. We have to have a natural strategy for aging. We've got to address that because at the we know that in the next, I think it's 10 years, we're going to have more people that are going to be over 65 than under 65. So we have to address that and, and, and start by having a national strategy. Insurance premiums, Mr. Speaker. Competition drives down the cost. We should be reviewing our, our policies and our legislation so that we can allow for outside entities such as Blue Cross, Blue Shield, whoever, other major conglomerates to come into Bermuda and compete. If we have more competition, people are going to have more choices, and people are going to be able to have a more cost-effective insurance policy. I think we also, Mr. Speaker, should look at reviewing the increases in the insurance premiums. The insurance providers should be required to justify any and all increases that they request. Mr. Speaker, the other thing I'd like to um, suggest is that we review the subsidy format. I've spoken about this previously particularly as it relates to youth subsidy. There are many people in this country that have major medical insurance and they have children. And the fact that we have a subsidy program for children who are, for, for children who are the children of parents who have major medical insurance, it, it, the amount that we must be spending in youth subsidy 
is must be just ridiculously high. And if a parent has major medical, then they should be able to utilize their major medical service uh, uh, um, insurance for their child. Their child should not be getting free hospitalization and hospital treatment, et cetera, when the parent is already covered by major medical. And I'm, again, I'm speaking specifically to scenarios where the parent has major medical. I'm not speaking about any other scenarios. Mr. Speaker, another way that we can better contain the cost that we have with respect to rising health care is better utilization of complementary and alternative health cares. Mr. Speaker, we find that particularly in the United States, over 40% of the American population are turning to complementary and alternative health care for issues of cancer and pain control, albeit they're taking their prescribed medicines. So I'm, what I'm saying is we're seeing an increase in the United States and other jurisdictions where people are utilizing herbal remedies, reflexology, chiropractic, acupuncture, massage therapy, and other types of alternative and complementary health care, which are far less expensive than conventional medical um, tra uh, treatments, and they have far fewer side effects. So again, that's something that we can consider to help with respect to cost containment. And just a minute. Yes. And, and Mr. Speaker, what I will be speaking about a little bit more when we go into committee is with respect to the provisions that I spoke about previously concerning the amendments in the bill that talk about allowing the subsidies, Mr. Speaker, to be utilized and applied towards residential home care, nursing care, hospice, uh, persons providing hospice care, as well as caregivers. And that deals specifically with another area of decentralization, and that's decentralization of surgical procedures. Mr. Speaker, some of the procedures that are offered here in the hospital are extremely expensive when you weigh them against some of the procedures that are offered, that same procedure offered elsewhere. For example, I understand that a, um, and I'm just looking at my note, if you could just excuse me one minute, Mr. Speaker. Um, with your indulgence, Mr. Speaker. I, I can't find it right this moment, but in any event, if we looked at decentralizing the surgical procedures at the hospital, then we will also be able to contain costs as well as offer better value for money for the consumer, namely the patient. As I started up my submissions, we, also, we want to make sure that we adopt procedures and policies that are not only cost effective and contain our costs and address the skyrocketing costs of health care, but more importantly, that patient safety obviously is first and foremost. That's the tantamount concern that we have, the principal concern that we have. However, if we look at how other jurisdictions, and I'll use the United States for example, have even decentralized the surgical procedures. So certain treatments doctors are allowed to use to do, perform those treatments, again, non-risky, low-risk, I think is the proper word, low-risk procedures within their, their own clinics as opposed to in the hospital. So we're de reducing the cost of the utilization of the hospital by allowing doctors to use current technology and perform those particular um, services. 
Um, the benefits, obviously, are to the consumer. Why we have reached a situation where the it seems like every, everything is driven towards the hospital. The insurance companies only want to pay for the hospital, for services that are in the hospital. We have to get to a point where insurance companies are paying for the service, not the location of where the service occurred. So if we have these clinics or have other established community clinics, we have in the United States something that they call sur surgery centers, which are like many surgery centers that doctors that are using technology and so forth, specializing in, uh, maybe it is the, I don't know the word is, but when they remove the, cor the cartridge from the nose to help somebody with their sinuses, that's a, a, an easy technique that can be done in the um, uh, doctor's office, an ear, nose, throat specialist in their offices, as opposed to having to go to the hospital and the expense associated with the fees that the hospital charges for utilizing their facility. And then they're utilizing the utilization of that facility, the insurance companies are paying the hospital because it's that location. We need to get to the point where the insurance companies are paying for the service and provided that it's a good service, it's reputable, and it's been um, provided with their accreditation, et cetera, et cetera, the service should not have to be in the hospital. We shouldn't be driving all those type of services to the hospital. So in that, Mr. Speaker, uh, subject to the comments that I made with respect to um, the parts of the bill that we support, I will be, when we get into committee, making a amendment as a, offering an amendment as it relates to um, extension of the uh, scheme in which the subsidy is applied towards so that we can include, as I indicated, outpatient surgical facilities. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Honorable uh, uh, Members.